Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Deborah Matthews. Deborah supports this podcast at the Catherine the Great tier, and Deborah Matthews was in fact pretty famous during Catherine the Great's time, mostly because she and Catherine the Great used to have tea together and plot how best to parcel up the unfortunate country of Poland. That of course is all a lie, but if you would like me to tell a lie about you, and also give you a shout out on this show, then why not check out Patreon and support this podcast from $7 or up. More on that later, but for now, enjoy the show. You're listening to the 30 Years War episode 9. In previous episodes, we've looked at Ottoman and Habsburg wars, and we've also seen how the Holy Roman Empire itself was changed by these wars. By 1606, as we know, the war was over. But the damage, as we've seen, was also done. The relationship between the emperor and his princes, in particular the Protestant ones, had frayed notably. And there seemed to be a real deficit of trust in the system, which meant that traditional methods for redress or appeal, or even for debate, such as the imperial diet or the imperial supreme court, had pretty much faded from view. If princes of the empire were not willing to make use of traditional avenues for protest, then what avenues would they go down? Well, as we'll see in this episode, the trend was moving towards independent action on the part of the Protestant princes of the empire. But this scorn for the old institutions didn't represent a scorn for the imperial constitution. No figure represented this stance better in my mind than Frederick V, the Elector Palatine. And in this episode, we're going to be properly introduced to this guy. Frederick had approved of alliances and marriages signed abroad, notably with England and the Dutch. He had acquired the leadership of the Evangelical Union of Protestant German Princes, and he maintained a level of influence in the empire, which was arguably second only to the emperor himself. In spite of this, and in spite of the appearance of going into business for himself, Frederick V was fiercely loyal to the traditions and to the memory of the Holy Roman Empire. His stance was based upon the firm, unshakable belief that while the Empire was inherently good, the Habsburgs and their Catholic Jesuit conspiracy to take it all over were absolutely not. In this episode we'll meet him, one of our series' most important figures, 
and the star of his own t-shirt, if you weren't aware. Frederick has been much maligned in the histories, so we're going to deal with these judgments from other historians too as we go on. For the record, one of the most useful sources for this episode has been Brennan C. Purcell's book The Winter King, which is in itself a revisionist take on Frederick V's actions, his motives and his legacy during the period. It's one of my favourite books, but it's not exactly cheap. So just in case you were curious, check that book out. Without any further ado, I'm so excited to get into this. I thought this bit of exposition was necessary, even though we don't normally have these anymore. But let's get started. Even his most reasonable biographer came to a pretty negative conclusion about the Elector Palatine's life. He said that Frederick V had the dubious honour of one of the most disastrous political careers in early modern European history. Invariably, Frederick was cast as a pleasure-loving non-entity, according to one historian. He was weak and shallow, in the words of another. He was a wavering, indecisive character. Not an oak, but a reed, incessantly trembling in the wind. And it's not all that hard to find similarly harsh judgments across the histories. Having listened to her book in audiobook format, as well as read it from cover to cover several times, C.V. Wedgwood's assessment of Frederick V sticks in my mind the most. As Wedgwood wrote, Gentle, trustful, equally capable of anger, hatred or resolution, he strove conscientiously to fulfil his responsibilities, although the pleasures of hunting, playing tennis, swimming, and even lying in bed were very tempting to him. Ironic fate had given him no vices, and all the virtues most useless to a ruling prince. He was strong neither in body nor in spirit, and the gentle education which had been planned to stimulate his timorous nature, and to fit him for the arduous championship of a cause, had softened out of existence what little character he had. Damning and conclusive, though Wedgwood's views on Frederick may appear here, the character which Wedgwood describes seems based less on actual evidence and more on her own imagination. Brennan Purcell makes the very important point that the old source from 1645, which Wedgwood cited to support these claims, in other words, she wrote all this stuff and then at the end there was a footnote pointing to this source from 1645, but it refers to an author who was apologetic, if not laudatory in tone, towards the Winter King. This 1645 source, just in case you were curious, was from Friedrich Spanheim, a contemporary of the Thirty Years' War, who was based in Leiden. At no point in the reference to which Wedgwood refers, does Spanheim criticise Frederick's want of character or moral fibre or willpower, nor does he mention Frederick lying in bed at all. Instead, Spanheim notes Frederick's lack of military education, but at the same time he underlines the fact that, even after everything that happened to him and all the friends that left his side, Frederick never sought vengeance against them and behaved nobly throughout his many ordeals. This, apparently, was a man who had all the virtues most useless to a ruling prince, according to Wedgwood. It is important to dwell on matters like Frederick V's character, 
because it was this very character that led the Elector Palatine to make one of the worst decisions in history and to accept the Bohemian crown. Were we to accept the blackening of his character, then it becomes all too easy to blame Frederick solely for what happened and neglect the additional causal factors which were all critically important. Because he was definitely on the losing side as well, we're faced with some enduring myths about Frederick in addition to the inaccuracies spouted by some historians, some of which developed during Frederick's time, and others that became canon for no reason other than the fact that they were repeated time and again. One notable myth was that Frederick V's policy was controlled by his wife. Now his wife was a pretty important person in her own right. She was Elizabeth Stuart, the sole daughter of James I and VI of England and Scotland. Elizabeth Stuart, many histories claim, pushed her husband to seize the Bohemian crown with the quotable phrase that she would rather eat sauerkraut with a king than roast meat with an elector, or the other statement that if Frederick had been bold enough to marry a king's daughter, he ought to have the courage to take a crown. Both lines, in the words of Brennan Purcell, are creations of Palatine enemies. They lack primary documentary evidence, they have been refuted in secondary historical literature, and they should be permanently dismissed. Having spent all this time breaking down who Frederick was not, we must take some time to investigate who he actually was. First and foremost, Frederick was a member of the Wittelsbach dynasty, a German family name with extensive roots and a proud history of competition and success which reached its peak when Rupert, one of the Palatine members of the Wittelsbach family, actually became Holy Roman Emperor in the early 15th century. Wittelsbach would rule in Bavaria and the Palatinate from the 13th century until the end of the German Empire, distinguishing this family and its further branches in the electorates of Trier, Mainz and Cologne as one of profound importance for the history of German culture and development. Even by 1610, when Frederick V's father died, his family name held a significant amount of weight, despite its eclipse under the Habsburg sun, which seemed to stretch all across the world. In addition to his family name, Frederick's identity was religiously based. The branch of the Wittelsbach family that ruled in the Upper and Lower Palatinate had embraced the Reformation, whereas their cousins in Bavaria remained true to the Catholic faith, as had the spiritual electorates of Trier, Mainz and Cologne. It remained to be seen whether blood was thicker than holy water, but by and large, the relations between the Wittelsbach family members remained good despite the religious differences, and throughout his reign as Duke, up until the eruptions later in the decade, Maximilian of Bavaria, who don't forget was also Wittelsbach, was extremely friendly to the Elector Palatine, as Wedgwood herself noted. As was typical with reformed princes of the time, Frederick believed passionately and absolutely in the tenets of his faith. Rule me, Lord, according to your word, was Frederick's motto. But such an expression should not single out Frederick or his Calvinist faith for ridicule. In the words of Peter H. Wilson, Frederick's firm Calvinism convinced him of the righteousness of his cause and induced an unshakable faith in ultimate victory. In social and political terms, however, his faith was far from the Spartan Puritanism that was then taking root among the inhabitants of English and Dutch towns. He had been chosen for a divine purpose 
because of his dignity as senior secular elector and his family's honourable heritage in imperial politics. This is all to say that Frederick believed he had been chosen for a purpose, and that purpose was to defend the German nation against the malignant threat from the Catholic conspiracy which was powered by the Jesuits and facilitated by the Habsburgs. Note Peter H. Wilson's designation of Frederick as Senior Secular Elector. This status was sourced from Frederick's striking position within the Holy Roman Emperor's constitution as Elector Palatine. It's something we've said an awful lot, and it was his official title, but what did it mean? Well, according to the terms of the 1356 Golden Bull, which established the system of electors and elections on legal ground, the Elector Palatine was the only imperial prince who could claim the prerogative to sit in judgment of an emperor. The Elector Palatine, alongside the Elector of Saxony, was also charged with serving as an imperial vicar and sharing control of the emperor's privileges during the interregnum between an emperor's death and the election of a new one. In addition, an emperor accused of any legal violation, and that meant the current Habsburg emperor, would have to answer to the Elector Palatine, who could exercise these rights at the imperial diet, as the emperor was supposed to be forced to sit in nervous silence. Now, it has to be said that it was virtually unfathomable to imagine Rudolf II, Matthias, or especially Ferdinand II, answering in any real meaningful way to Frederick V, but according to the legalities of the Empire's constitution, Frederick was well within his rights to expect this. At the same time, it was not within Frederick's character to lord these privileges over his subjects, his princely peers, or his rivals. While he was, in the judgments of the imperial constitution at least, unequalled in importance save for the emperor, in practicality, Frederick was vigorous, affable, and good-natured. I do not like to keep anyone from his happiness and well-being, he declared. When he travelled out of his disconnected territories, most notably to wed Elizabeth Stuart in 1613, he made very positive impressions on those that met him. Frederick was an avid huntsman, demonstrating that Wedgwood didn't base all of her character sketch on thin air, and Frederick did also cut a dashing, confident, accomplished figure to those English onlookers that caught a glimpse of him with his equestrian skills in particular standing out. Little wonder that an Englishman little wonder that an Englishman visiting the Palatinate in 1619 judged Frederick to be much beyond his years, religious, wise, active and valiant, esteemed and renowned in all of Germany, loved and honoured by all his own people. Indeed it is sometimes taken for granted that Frederick should have the opportunity to marry such an English prize, for it suggested in the future that England would support the Palatinate, and thus Frederick himself, in whatever difficulties he came into. The marriage alliance with the Stuarts and the diplomatic consequences which went along with the marriage contract were negotiated in 1611 when Frederick was just 15 years old and had yet to come into his majority in the Palatinate. We will return in later episodes to King James's angle in these affairs, so don't worry, there's a lot of juicy diplomacy to come. But the short version of the story holds that the Protestant King of England and Scotland hoped to balance the hostile forces of Europe and maintain his monarcher as a peaceable monarch by fostering a marriage agreement between a Protestant, that is to say Palatine, and a Catholic, that is to say Spanish, power. 
By so doing, James planned to use his familial influence to offset political strife on the continent and, at all costs, to avoid war. Seen in the context of the early 1610s, James's was not a particularly bad plan. Certainly, peace was what the British people wanted, and James correctly discerned that his kingdoms could not afford a major continental entanglement at this time. Having contributed to the ending of the Anglo-Spanish War in 1604, James was keen to ensure that his kingdom was not tied up in such a thankless conflict ever again. While he married his daughter into the Littlesback family, James also signed an alliance with the Evangelical Union in April 1612, the Union being that defensive alliance block of German Protestant princes, of which Frederick V was the technical leader, having inherited the position from his father. This agreement was mirrored by the Dutch alliance with the Protestant Union the following year. Before he had even travelled to meet his bride, in other words, Frederick V's position seemed secure, defended zealously by the usual suspects in Europe's Protestant camp. Further ties recommended Frederick as well. His mother was a daughter of William the Silent, that Dutch rebel leader who founded the House of Orange as the Dutch Republic's foremost bastion of anti-Spanish rhetoric and action. By marrying Elizabeth, Frederick also gained a mother-in-law in Queen Anne, who was the sister of King Christian IV of Denmark, another Protestant notch he could add to his belt. As if all that wasn't enough, Frederick's aunt had been the first wife of King Charles IX of Sweden, and in 1616, Frederick's sister married the elector of Brandenburg, another Calvinist potentate in the empire. These familial ties recommended Frederick still further to lead a union of Protestants. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Protestant princes in Germany and would later recommend him to the Protestant Bohemian rebels when they attempted to search for a new king. Frederick was eager to play the role of a Protestant champion, and he was also keenly aware of his position in the empire as an opposing force against the Habsburgs. Upon landing in England in October 1612, Frederick met with Elizabeth several times, forging a bond which was to last 20 years. 
They made their engagement official in January 1613 and then married in February. In celebration, the future father-in-law King James threw a wedding banquet, which cost him in excess of £53,000, a startling anticipation of the kind of financial support he would send his son-in-law in the future. In April 1613, the newlyweds departed for the Palatinate, accompanied by 34 luxurious decorated carriages and an entourage of 4,000 people, and they reached their destination of Heidelberg on the 7th of June 1613. The symbolism was already strong in the Palatine court, which became increasingly regal as the royal couple made it their home. A tournament was announced and Frederick dressed in the most provocative of clothing. First, he was Jason the Argonaut, the man who stole the Golden Fleece, the Order of the Golden Fleece being the highest chivalric order in the Habsburg realm. Then he was Arminius, defender of the Germans against the Romans, a blatant conflagration of the Germans versus the Habsburgs, who styled themselves as King of the Romans during the process of being crowned Holy Roman Emperor. Driving the point home even further, just in case you didn't get it, celebrations and performances depicted the Germans reciting in verse the explanation for why the recent Diet in 1613 had failed. The Jesuits, Capuchins and Spanish interference were all freely and loudly blamed. Before the end of the year, Elizabeth Stuart was pregnant and on New Year's Day 1614 she had borne her first child, the first of 13. A fascinating aspect of this royal couple's offspring was not merely their legacy, as the modern British Hanoverian line is traced to their children, but also these children's names, which serve as a kind of tribute to their illustrious ancestors as much as to those that granted the Palatine family asylum and aided their cause. Thus, their son Maurice, born in 1621, was named for Maurice of Nassau, the Dutch stadtholder, while the more blatant Gustavus Adolphus, yes, Frederick did name his son that, he was born in 1632, was named after the triumphant Swedish king of the same name. Both children tell a distinct story of where the Palatine couple was in its struggle against the Habsburgs, and who they leaned on as their allies. It is clear that both individuals certainly leaned on each other, as any married couple would be expected to. There can be no doubt that theirs was an immensely fruitful marriage, the ideal of any marriage contract in any century. It was also fortunate that both Elizabeth and Frederick were in love. Aww, from an early stage as well. This love and affection is sometimes twisted into the aforementioned falsehood that Elizabeth controlled her weak-willed husband and ordered him around, but the evidence attests more to the fact that Elizabeth, in Purcell's words, like a good 17th century royal spouse, seems to have tried to serve her husband's political objectives without demanding a role in them. As Frederick himself wrote to Elizabeth on one occasion, I would like to be able to write to you as often, but I have so many other letters to write and so little time to spare that it is impossible for me. Believe that I do not love you the less for that. Indeed, Frederick V was a very busy man, even before accepting the Bohemian crown in autumn 1619. His responsibilities, which he fully assumed in 1614 after his 18th birthday, were extensive, and the challenges within these responsibilities were legion. On his side, Frederick could rely on his numerous Protestant alliances, with the English and Dutch above all, and his position in the empire as constitutionally supreme, religiously supported, and financially secure. However, as the Thirty Years' War was soon to demonstrate, such traditional structures 
counted for nothing when compared to that all-important, primitive failsafe, raw power. While Frederick was militarily buoyed by his allies in the Evangelical Union, the very nature of his lands counted against him, as the historian Robert Zahler appreciated when he wrote, Frederick's own dominions were uniquely exposed to reprisal. Known collectively as the Palatinate, they consisted of two fairly compact areas of roughly equal size, separated by about 200 miles on almost the exact line of latitude. The lower, or western, Palatinate was dissected by the Rhine, and lay along Spain's route to the Netherlands, while the upper, or eastern, Palatinate, lying just above the northernmost thrust of the Danube, bordered not only Bohemia, but Bavaria, the most powerful Catholic state in the empire, and imperial Austria itself. Geography, such as this, dictated the most extreme caution in foreign relations. Frederick's capital, Heidelberg, and the place where he and his family made their home and court, was situated in the Lower Palatinate, and was one of three important towns in the region. Straddling the Rhine and its tributaries, such as the River Necker, Heidelberg, Mannheim and Frankenthal all played their purpose as the university city and capital and the two fortress towns, respectively, which protected the confluence of the Necker and the fertile left bank of the Rhine. Now, it's not critically important to appreciate where all of these territories reside, largely because, in our narrative, poor old Frederick isn't very fortunate and he doesn't hold on to these things for very long. To build a picture of the Elector Palatine's geographical challenges, though, we should bear in mind that distance of 200 miles which separated the two segments of his realm, that being the Lower and Upper Palatinate. And this strange feature of Frederick's realm was a striking feature, in fact, of the Holy Roman Empire's apparently nonsensical statecraft. This wasn't Frederick's attempt to confuse the listener. Instead, it had more to do with the traditions of marriage, inheritance and primogeniture. Before we delve into something of a mind map in the Holy Roman Empire to explain where Frederick's domains resided, I wanted to take a sec to talk to you about Patreon. Now, forgive me if you've heard this before, you have my permission to fast forward, but if you are curious about what we're doing over on Patreon, and if you were wondering if you would, in fact, be interested in listening in to extra stuff that we have there, then keep on listening for about two minutes. $5 a month, you see, you can be accessing an hour of extra content every month by listening to Poland is Not Yet Lost. Currently, we're exploring the initial years of the 18th century, firmly in the perspective of the King of Sweden and the Tsar of Russia, while Poland is awkwardly sandwiched in the middle. Poland is Not Yet Lost is a very fun story. At least I'm having great fun, and I've heard great feedback from other patrons too. It's going to continue right to the end of the 18th century, so we've got a long way to go before the story runs out of steam yet. If listening to another narrative in history, in addition to the Thirty Years' War, sounds like fun to you, then great. Click on the link in the description below. If, on the other hand, you've got more than enough podcasts for your book, then why not give us two books? And in return for those two books a month, you can be getting ad-free episodes of this show. You'll also get them a few days earlier, on Monday instead of Wednesday. Isn't that nice? I must reiterate again that you guys make this podcast possible, especially now when things are pretty uncertain and everyone's talking about working from home, etc, etc. It is nice to know that I have you guys supporting me and backing me up. The college may be closed, 
Trinity's library may be closed. My professors may be on indefinite leave until all of this blows over. But I know that I have you to rely upon. And that means the world to me. For the faith that you're investing in me in this podcast, I really can't thank you enough. And I mean that. I really do. Over the next few months, I'll have some exciting things to announce. I'm working quietly on stuff in the background, so stay tuned. And I'm sorry about these constant Patreon reminders. I'll try to mix them up a little bit. Oh, speaking of which, why not check out our Twitter, at WDF Podcast, or join the Facebook group, which is nearing 900 members. My goal is to get it to 1,000 before the end of the year, so why not help and join by clicking on the link in the description below. Alrighty, guys, that's all. Now let's continue with the story. A handy exercise for getting to grips with where everything is in the Holy Roman Empire is to imagine the Hori as a square, with the square being superimposed on Central Europe and modern-day Germany. It would then be correct to place the lower Palatinate in the middle left of that square, especially if we imagine the Rhine as the border of this square. Now note that I said lower Palatinate, because while the lower section of his lands was his favourite, and unquestionably the most prosperous, Frederick also had responsibility over the upper Palatinate too, and this chunk of territory was virtually slap-bang in the centre of the square, surrounded by the Habsburgs to the south, Bohemia to the east, and Bavaria to the southwest. Both of these halves supported a population of about 600,000, a not inconsiderable number when one considers that the population of Bavaria, Sweden, Scotland, Saxony and Brandenburg was barely a million, and the likes of Württemberg, Hesse and Trier had roughly 400,000. Seen in this light, then, the Palatinate was in the upper tiers of population density in the Holy Roman Empire, but its practical power was less certain. While his influence within the HRE was considerable, being in possession of two disconnected portions of territory and just over half a million subjects, made Frederick V a far less practically powerful figure than the consequences of his actions might suggest. For some time, Palatine diplomacy had held France close, especially once the Protestant Henry IV came to the throne. Christian of Anhalt, later to come under so much scorn from historians for his reckless diplomacy before the Thirty Years' War, fought tooth and nail for the Bourbon king's cause, shelling out for the funds out of his own pocket to the tune of more than one million Reichsthalers during one campaign in 1591. The Palatinate sent men to the French Wars of Religion as well. 10,000 Palatine soldiers went to fight for the French Protestants in 1568. In 1576, 20,000 crossed into French territory, and in 1587, 25,000 Palatine soldiers made the journey into France. These considerable displays of affinity towards the Protestant cause and the French Wars of Religion placed France deeply in the debt of the Palatine court, with the latest loan arranged in 1594 amounting to 400,000 florins. The turmoil in France and the opportunities this provided the Palatinate to back the winning horse were good incentives for the then electoral Palatines to get involved in the French business, just as the Habsburgs had made a habit of doing. Once their candidate converted to Catholicism in 1593, though, a sense of coolness entered into Franco-Palatine diplomacy. This didn't reduce the Francophone nature of Heidelberg, though. In fact, this affinity for all things French in language, art and culture, 
was enhanced upon the exile of the Huguenot Duke of Bouillon from 1602, who had been implicated in a plot to assassinate Henry IV. Bouillon was Frederick's uncle, and with his father dying at an early age, Frederick V spent much of his adolescence at Bouillon's court in Sedan, which had been made into a centre of Calvinist thought and learning. Two things were inculcated into Frederick from this education, a respect for the Holy Roman Empire's constitution, and a love of all things French. Frederick's fluency in French and his fondness for French customs were replicated in Heidelberg when he returned with his bride in 1613. The language was a convenience, as well as a necessity, for Frederick's court straddled the Rhine, and it was well within reach of the magnetism of the French court. Visitors from the Netherlands, England, the Empire, and of course France itself, provided the Palatine couple with the opportunity to frame their court as one of splendour and influence. If Frederick was concerned at the apparent decay in the Empire's institutions, which would normally be there to ensure peace, they was also sensible enough to rely on the solid foundations of the Peace of Augsburg from 1555, and to rely on the fact that this agreement on the religious divisions of the Empire had preserved peace for over 60 years, a period of time which, as one historian has pointed out, was unmatched in Europe until the recent stretch of European peace following the Second World War. This despite the fact, of course, that the Peace of Augsburg did not officially even recognise Frederick's religious creed. But then, Frederick's was not the only accepted loophole. Frederick was only settling into his majority and celebrating the birth of his first son when the Ulic Cleave crisis had drawn to a close in 1614. The incident had been the latest spat between the Dutch and Spanish, but the French and Austrians also got involved to support their candidates as well. In spite of the close proximity to Spanish satellite states along the Rhine and in the Spanish Netherlands, Heidelberg did not enjoy formal diplomatic relations with Spain. Such non-engagement with Madrid's agents did not mean that either power were ignorant of the other. Instead, it indicates a lack of consideration for what was to follow when the Spanish occupied the Lower Palatinate with Bavarian help in the early 1620s. Palatine diplomacy and Frederick's marital connections to the Dutch, English, Swedes, Danes and Brandenburgers placed him and his family firmly in the Protestant camp, as if his leadership of the Evangelical Union was not enough of a giveaway already. This had the potential to place him in a camp hostile to Spain once the Twelve Years' Truce ended in April 1621 and the Spanish-Dutch War was back on. Indeed, historians such as Wedgwood single out the deadline of the truce's expiration as the moment when Europe's contemporaries anticipated some great conflagration would erupt, but this by no means necessitated the empire following the Spanish and Dutch into the abyss. The fact that in the end this peace was not held together had as much to do with the inefficiency of the traditional constitutional checks and balances of the empire as it did with a troubling fact for the Habsburg family. Its Austrian branch was shedding its old guard to make way for a man who was raised in the most thorough iteration of counter-reformation Catholicism yet. It remained to be seen if this figure would be accepted or if he would be shunned, and if the latter occurred, how he would react. This man's name was Ferdinand of Styria, and in the next episode, we are going to meet him, having already met his major rival here. Until then, history friends, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 9 of the 30 Years of War. Thanks so much for listening, keep yourselves safe and well, and I'll be seeing you all 
soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.